When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Guys, this is Succession. This is HBO. If you don't want to hear me talking about Logan Roy, talking about then don't listen to this. There are bad language words in this show. Hello, and welcome to, I guess, what we have to call the Succession episode of Slate Money Succession. It has been three and a half seasons but we finally find out who takes over from Logan Roy. I am Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of the New York Times and other many places. Hello. And very excitingly, we are here with the one and only friend of the pod, Mr. Michael Beirut. Welcome, Michael. Hello, everybody. Hello. Um, you have come on for various... Uh, different types of episodes over the over the years but introduce yourself and tell us about your succession mania i am uh i'm a uh a partner in a firm called pentagram where i do brand consulting and graphic design of all kinds uh i have probably over the course of my career had you know 500 different people serving as clients to my work and all of them are represented in every episode in one form or another so <laughs> As, as just like Tom keeps saying, I only seek to serve, and I've ended up serving all sorts of people. So I watch it sort of uh, uh, with a ghoulish sort of fascination, like we all do. So this is this is amazing. I, okay, you can um, help to distinguish between Hugo and Carolina. This is a, a, a relationship which I which we have been, what's the word, speculating about on the on this show quite a bit. Uh, but Emily, this is this is the sh- episode that you loved, right? And it's also the episode where we get a new proper actual CEO or co-CEOs yes. of Waystar Royco. Yes, this episode, first of all, takes place the day after Logan dies, and all they're all out looking to look looking to work the angles in Logan's house. It's like. It's all about who takes over. There's a little bit of mourning in the beginning of the episode. They show the the three kids kind of like laying around. Oh, and drop the bomb news that Shiv is pregnant, by the way. Before the titles. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's but it's the coronation demolition derby, as she says. So the whole episode is, you know, vying for power in this aftermath. Like the king is dead. Who's gonna be the next king? It's totally unclear. There's a wonderful scene in the kitchen where Jerry, Frank, and Carl are kind of like trying to and Tom trying to work their magic and yeah and Tom, but he's casually <laughs> dismissed. But yes, the whole episode is about this board meeting. Who's gonna Who's gonna be up to be the CEO? And it is delicious in all the ways we love Succession to be. Um, in terms of continuity, like it is fascinating what they show and what they don't show, but like. We never actually see the board meeting. 
right? We just kind of see Stewie barging in quasi uninvited to like the the pre-board meeting and effectively single-handedly just coronating Roman and Kendall as co-CEOs. And at that point, it's a done deal. We don't even need to see the actual board meeting. Right. That's like so many things. The pre-meeting is where everything gets decided before the meeting where you just, you know, pro forma say what you're going to say, but it's all, it's all happened already. That's how it works. Right, Michael? Well, I think, I think actually when I'm, when I'm gone to these like high stakes meetings, almost the criteria for success is that everything's been decided beforehand, Mm -hmm. that nothing of, there'll be no surprises, there'll be nothing of real import, that everything's been brought together. Sometimes I consider expense and inconvenience to the participants to sort of sit through a thing that has a preordained outcome. And not only is that not frustrating or boring for people, it's sort of seen as uh, um, just as it should be in a way. So, I'm reminded actually of, my cousin Thomas, we had him on the show a few years ago talking about the Salmon family when we had a company that we controlled but was still a public company and needed board meetings. And there would always be a meeting of the Salmon family the day before the meeting of the, the board meeting of the company where everything was actually decided at the meeting of the Salmon family. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's interesting that at various points in the episode... Um, Shiv talks about having a message from her mom. Greg talks about how he's talked to Uncle Ewan. Like, clearly there are other members of the family who would like to be involved in those discussions, but they're just not there. And, like, physically being there turns out to be the thing that actually matters most. Yes, because some of the most important conversations, obviously the the conversation between Kendall, Roman, and Shiv, but also between Kendall and Stewie, that was basically the pivotal conversation where, and let's, let's unpack that a little if, if we want, if we, we want, want to skip ahead. We want, this is slate money succession. We want. <laughs> yeah. We want to unpack. So, so Kendall basically, they have this interesting conversation where at first it's personal and there's hugging and an exchange of insults. <laughs> and then, you know, he makes this play for Stewie's support. And when Stewie says, what's in it for me, Kendall just says, helping out an old friend. And that seems to have worked. Thoughts? Elizabeth. Yeah, it seemed out of character for Stewie to just go, okay. <laughs> Which, you know, didn't literally happen, but he seemed to, that that seemed to be enough. And I, I, for me, they hadn't really established that he and Stewie were that close. So it was a little confusing for me. Well, I mean, we've had their, their relationship has been tumultuous over the course of this show. And they've been very close and they've been very far apart at various different points over the seasons. But it has always been clear that they go back a long way. And, you know, and so on some level, uh, there's that one line where, um, is it Frank or Carl? Like, um, basically turns to Stewie looking at this fait accompli that he's implemented basically and says, you just want to be the puppet master. And I, I think uh, if you want an answer to your question, Emily, that's the answer, right? That Stewie reckons he's going to have more control over Ken than he would over mm. say Jerry, which yeah. is probably true. Everyone kind of keeps simultaneously behaving as if this is a really crucial consequential decision 
that will be a long-lasting one, while all simultaneously saying, this is just interim, get the deal done, then I'll be out. And everyone sort of says, put me in charge because I won't be there that long. There's a lot of that going on. And so I think um, uh, Stewie, like everyone else, is sort of thinking this is just one move on the chessboard, but not the final one. And they'll be, you know, I think everyone is just trying to figure out what gives them the most uh, favorable terms for future maneuvering in a way. After all, there are going to be six more episodes. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, the old guard is basically like, I think it's Carl who says, like, I, I almost bought this house in, in on a Greek island or something, and, like, Kendall's just going to screw it up. Like, he's not going to land this deal, and, like, it's all going to fall apart, which I share that concern. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if I were Stewie and purely motivated by money, um, and I really wanted the deal to happen, I would put in someone who whose job was clearly to sell the company and who mm -hmm. was answerable to the non-family shareholders who didn't have any, like, emotional, um, you know, shit tied up in the company. I mean, like, Stewie knows, because he's not dumb, that all three of the kids were violently opposed to selling this company to doing this deal not so long ago at the end of season three, right? They're all now paying lip service to the idea that they've changed their mind and they want to do the deal. But like, if you're going, if, you, if your main thing is, I want to do the deal, then you don't put in charge two people who were violently opposed to it just a few weeks ago. And who have like an interest and who have had an interest over the past four years, if not obviously longer in running years. their father's... Yeah, in running their father's company. Like, it's just too tempting. And by the end of the episode, you have Kendall, you know, going behind Roman's back and, like, doing his dad a dirty. And, <laughs> and you know, to set up this, like, PR campaign to basically smear him um, after he's dead. Like, it's just, even if they're telling the truth and, and they want to do this deal, like, they don't. They don't want to. They want to see if they can do dad's job, right? Well, they all assume that the, the interim designation is is not real. That, you know, once they're in the seat, they get to stay there if they, you know, make the right moves. So, Elizabeth, are you saying that Roman and Kendall clearly don't want to do the deal? No, I think the deal is kind of ancillary to what their ambitions are. I think now that they're in the CEO seat as co-CEOs, uh, their their priority is to stay there. So whatever allows them to do that, I think, is you know the move. That so they would make. so when you say that, when you say stay there, like, do you mean beyond staying there as head of like ATN Pierce and doing the you know ru running that media company that they said they want to run? Yeah, I don't think they have any intention of just being interim. CEOs. Yeah, but they will, like, if they do the deal, they become the permanent CEOs of ATN PS, mm -hmm. right? That's like, that's the plan. Um, the question is, like, what I'm asking you is, when you say they don't have any intention of just being interim CEOs, do you mean they don't have any intention of being interim CEOs of Waystar Royco and all of the theme parks and the cruises and the film studios and everything else? Or is it just... You know, which one is it? Do they want to actually scuttle, scuttle the deal or not? 
I don't think they do now. I, I think it, it, you know, makes a difference that Logan is actually gone. You know, they've they've hinted all the way through the season that they had trouble sort of wrapping their heads around the idea that Logan was ever going to leave. And so now all of them are ambitious in their own way. All of them have wanted to be in charge of the company at some point. So for me, it just makes sense that now that uh, Kendall and Roman are in that seat, they're, they'll do whatever it takes to stay there. Michael, what do you think? I was wondering during one of my favorite scenes, which is the um, when they call when they call back um, uh, the Swede and attempt to have a conference call, and they're talking to his uh, um, assistant Oscar, uh, and um, <laughs> I believe, and um, they're just, you know just that choreography of expressions, faces, and everything. As there's that weird moment where it's sort of unclear whether they actually know that um you know that logan died you know because they're the, they're not getting sort of the right sort of cues from uh from from, from, Oscar. from the assistant yeah. from oscar yeah it's sort of like um yeah no tough that was tough that he says well that and, was tough. And, and, yeah <laughs> tough yeah tough day yeah and um uh but i wonder had they gotten through what what were they going to say uh, and I guess what they're going to say is we're in charge now and you'll deal with us and we'll get back to you in a week, which is how it ended, maybe. But I don't think they sort of know what the, you know, I think the kids really do sort of all seem to possess this common trait where they're unable to see anything except the next step. And the next step now is just sort of making sure that they're in charge. And then after that, you know, who knows? They definitely made it clear that the original timeline which is basically that the deal gets signed tomorrow is off and they're like no we're burying our dad like get real and it seems that lucas madsen has understood that very well because he's gone and you know scheduled his annual retreat for when he was meant to be signing this deal which can't be changed Uh, you know it's the annual retreat we can't change that so um yeah although like clearly i think as of episode one of this show, that annual retreat was not scheduled for this time, right? Because as yeah. of episode one, it was they were going to be signing the deal that day. Yeah. It's wild, that kind of power move. And it's not obvious how um, the degree to which the kids actually like have grokked that and understand how much of a, like, a play it is. But he's clearly making some kind of a play. Um, and it's not obvious what play he's making. Right. It's not obvious. to Like, is he changing his mind or is he like just preserving optionality? Like he's waiting to see. um, He's seen, obviously, the Waystar Royco share price fall. Is he waiting to see whether he can get a better deal by just waiting a little bit and watching things burn a little bit longer? Don't you think he'd rather deal with... um anyone as opposed to logan who i think was at least kind of formidable and had was bringing sheer force of will into the situation even though it did seem like you know they're separated in style by generations and a kind of a mutual lack of kind of understanding of that perhaps but then i think uh, my guess is that he sort of would think that the longer he waits it's just going to get more and more and more favorable for him correct it can't go otherwise that's what i think i mean he really has two options to do the deal at the price he agreed on or do the deal at a low, well, three options or do the deal at a lower price or not do it at all. Yeah. And things are in play. So it makes sense that he would sort of 
not pay that original price because the company is now worth less than it was before Logan died. Presumably that alone suffices to explain why Sandy and Stewie have gone very quiet about their idea of trying to get the price up. Yeah. Oh, that's like off the table, right? And no one's talking about that. That's over. Which is weird, (laughs) right? Because like in principle, nothing has changed in terms of the assets that Matson is buying. Yeah, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's more like a plot device almost because now it's like everything depends on Kendall and Roman's ability to land the plane. What does he say? It would be a feather in my... Kendall says it would be a feather in my cap if I can make this deal or something. And and actually, you know, there is that one scene between Shiv and Tom where Shiv is like, like it's, our, it's my fault that dad died, basically. Um, that I think probably she speaks on some like emotional level for all three of them when she clearly deeply regrets having pushed him to try and renegotiate the deal and get a better price and his death has just kind of placed this pall over that entire idea and no one no one is is still is committed to it even anymore not even you know sandy jr yeah Oh my god, but Sandy Senior turns up. We haven't we didn't see him all last season and now he turns up in the wheelchair. Doesn't get any lines. No, but 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 he he he's quoted though. What is he yeah, what 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 is what's attributed to him? Why is is the sex party so sad at the sex party? (laughs) (laughs) Why is the sex party so sad? (laughs) No, it's a good question. Um, presumably that's a tip of the hat to old Sumner Redstone. Yes. A lover of sex parties. <laughs> An attendee <laughs> at sex parties. Who among us doesn't love the occasional parties? sex party? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's better than whatever that was at Logan's house. I guess it was Awake, where um, the presidential candidate was coming in and people were making speeches. I mean, what kind of crazy wake was that? Is that what a wake is like? I don't, I don't who, know. Yeah, that, that like beardy <laughs> guy who I always think of as being like Grover Norquist. Just standing up and trying to, I don't know, gather the troops and doing clearly quite a bad job of it. Everyone seems to be rolling their eyes. Hunter says something like they're they're trying to body snatch her dad. There there was through the whole episode, there was this motif of people kind of seeking to characterize someone else in very specific terms. And that was an example of it. He was going to get up and say, um, you know, Logan Roy was a giant figure in the conservative movement and everyone's rolling their eyes. But then you even had, who is it that says, uh, you know, the kids could take over, but they're um, uh, screw-ups and dipshits. Tom, and then yeah. I think Frank says, or, or or you might say that they're just simply constitutionally unprepared <laughs> at this moment to accept the whatever, you know. And then, and then there's, um, uh, uh, I think Frank is talking to Tom and says something like, um, well, let me see if I could just kind of play out a scenario of how you might be viewed. And then it goes into that long speech about, you know, you're a hanger on and you sort of like, you know, you're, you're the only person who liked you is dead and you're married. You're getting divorced from, you know, from his daughter and she never liked you anyway. And, you know, and sort of like it's always like um, people just kind of putting whatever spin on. And then, of course, ends at the very end um, with the ultimate sort of, you know, the plot device that's unleashed. Um, by Kendall with Hugo sort of tweaking or re-spinning the, you know, the press about his late father and just sort of saying, well, you know, why don't we go with option two, but no fingerprints and, uh, uh, you know, 
but like actually just doing, you know, uh, posthumous character assassination, basically. That's a really good point. It is, there is the theme running through the whole episode of like Logan's legacy is being written right now in real time. And there's this great scene with the kids, three kids where they're looking at um, the The obituaries and they do translations. So he says... He was a complicated man. And then Kendall says, through phones at staff, sharp reader of the national mood, very racist, man of his era, also racist. racist. (laughs) So good. Um, Yeah. And that does run through the whole thing. Like this is, and I think Connor even literally says it like history is being written right now. Yeah. Connor has that wonderful line as well, where he's like, he wasn't a neocon. He was a paleo libertarian. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean? Does it mean you only eat raw foods <laughs> and you don't believe in taxes? I, I didn't understand what a paleo libertarian he was. He was, was. practically an anarcho-capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, in a weird way, like, you know, obviously Connor is ridiculous, but he's half right. Um, like now, now, you know, at some point we should, we should like write Logan's obituary a little bit. Um, Logan definitely has the Murdochian ability to let the winds blow him where where they're moving, like to be able to support both Tony Blair and Donald Trump. You know, like he's not, he wasn't an ideologue, but insofar as he had a sort of belief in anything, like I do think that, that, sort of paleo-libertarian and practically anarcho-capitalist are right. Like, he's just, like, law of the jungle, right? And I am going to just go out there and roar more loudly than anyone else, and I'm going to take over, and and I have the most money, and therefore I get to make the rules. And that was really about as far, like, as his, his sort of personal ideology went. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, 
giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I think we need to talk about Marsha because she's back. We haven't seen her. Oh my since god! The last season, right? Like, since she was shopping forever. I was, I was so happy when I saw Marsha <laughs> there, and that wonderful exchange with Ken at the very beginning, where Marsha's like, "Sorry for your loss," and Ken's like, um, "Thank you." Likewise. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise, I'm sure. Yeah. Ken is all of us. Like, she's back. What? Yeah. What, what and happened? And, and, and by the way, uh, I want to note that uh, people complain no deals ever get made. Um, Marsha managed to sell that apartment oh right there Marcia, in the foyer. Marsha should be like a high-end real estate agent. Seriously, like, she, she has this utterly discombobulated Connor in front of her who has no idea what numbers even are. And before he knows it, he's buying the house for $63 million. <laughs> I thought she could have gotten more because she said between 60 and 70. He said 63. You're never supposed to take the first offer. She obviously started at like way higher than she wanted to sell. And then he came in at that ridiculously high range and she's like, fine, done. (laughs) She was expecting to sell for like 45. She could have gotten 64 is all I'm saying. No, because no, what she did, this is a genius (laughs) thing. What she did was like she took his genuine, she took Connor's genuine confusion and turned it into an offer. Like when Connor said like 63, he wasn't saying I would be willing to pay 63. He was just saying like he was he was calculating, you know, what what are numbers between 60 (laughs) and 70? 63 would be one of those numbers, right? (laughs) Exactly. And then and then she sees her opening and she grabs it. Yeah. It was Okay, she is a deal making genius. Yeah. I also love that it goes, you know, she spits on her hand and Reaches for the handshake. That was disgusting. (laughs) Would you do that? That's my question. I was like, I I don't think I would do that. I would not spit and shake the spit (laughs) in return. I just, constitutionally, I mean, I'm never going to be in the position of buying a $63 million townhome in Manhattan, I don't think. No spoiler there. But but Emily, in case you ever are, I I should just tell you that... It's pretty smart. It's pretty smart not to pay realtors fees, and it's such a bitch to get into these big buildings. <laughs> <laughs> she couldn't argue with that. She was like, "All right, yeah." <laughs> and and that and that brought up the carry scene as well, which I thought was really heartbreaking. So so yeah, yeah. so it's super interesting. Obviously, Carrie, and then to a much lesser extent, I would say Roman are the people with actual emotions um, in this episode. But Kerry comes in clearly distraught um, in a way that no one else in the apartment is. Marsha has negative sympathy for her. And it's just like, what's her amazing line? We're calling her a taxi to the subway so that she can go home to her little apartment. Yeah, I mean, she, I mean she's the one person in the room... That is completely stripped of power. Like, doesn't have even one iota of, of, of power or goodwill. Yeah. And I remember, it wasn't that long ago that I was worried about how they were going to um, 
ease her either into or out of her position in the anchor chair at uh, at ATN. That seemed like it might be a, an ongoing sort of motif that would continue through the entire season. Now suddenly uh, we don't have uh, Carrie to worry about anymore. But but like it's it's like it's rare where someone is like actually you know the the, the bag. Again, it's one of those kind of like um, two large, inappropriately large bags that she has yes. there with her stuff in um, that, that spills open. It's all over the place. And it's just, you know, it's, it, you know, it, 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 had someone been shot and bleeding on the floor, it would barely be just a little bit more shocking than just even all that detritus on the floor being cleared up and get it out of here, including her. You know? I, I, she was I, just I don't talking think... to Roman about, he said he was going to marry me. He was going to make it official. We were going to come out. It Is was that what like, she said? I couldn't hear. It was very gothic to me. It was very um, it, it, Edith Wharton, is, you know? Is, those the, is that actually what she said? Or are you kind yeah, of like reading was, into it? That That is what she was saying. I yes. need, I need yes. to be listening with better headphones. <laughs> Yes, you do. But obviously none of that's happening. And it has been interesting to see who is like who has lost power without Logan. Like it was the, it's the people without alliances. Like the three siblings are in some ways loyal to each other. I mean, not really, but you know, they have bonds and the old guard, they're sort of bonded to each other in a very weird passive aggressive backstabby way, but they're like a team of they sort of respect each other. Um, but then Tom and Greg, they really are out there. And you they see Tom kind of grasping between all of them, trying to find, you know, his new alliance and telling all of yeah. them, I'm just and here to serve. Yeah. If there is a ring, my hat is available to be thrown <laughs> into it or whatever you said. I'll be of service to yeah. whoever. Roman's response to Tom's, um, <laughs> to Tom is absolutely amazing. He calls him lip balm Tom Wham, lubing up his lip to kiss my butt. And you're like... <laughs> Yeah, accurate. Fair, accurate. <laughs> right, riding his little subtle cycle across Niagara Falls. <laughs> it's, but also, yeah, I mean, like Tom is interesting here because clearly he's trying to, as you say, play all the angles and trying to get retain some kind of semblance of, of relevance. But there's no way that his connection to relevance and power is going to be. Roman. Like, that's just simply never going to happen. Roman's not like that. Right. But Kendall is. <laughs> Kendall's move with Hugo is pretty amazing. It's like, it's the arc of the episode because when Kendall walks into the townhouse, and let's just, let me just emphasize that Hugo is talking to his own daughter and he's telling her, you fucked me in the ass. You, you put a strap on, he, what is it? You have a strap on and you fucked me in the ass. To his daughter, that's what he's saying to his Daughter, I just wrote it down in my notes like three times. His daughter, his daughter. But you learn at the very yeah, Emily, you learned that at the very end. I mean, I remember when I, I mean, that really struck me because it seemed sort of, you know, it was just odd that he walked in and they had another mm -hmm. character having this side conversation. Mm -hmm. And I sort of thought it was just kind of like life goes on. You know, someone might have just died, but someone else is getting fucked in the ass with a strap on because <laughs> he, by that's, the way, that's just not, the way it goes, baby. He's not actually talking to her. He's leaving her a voicemail. Yes, yes, Ooh, good point. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So it turns out then that she has uh, sold stock right before it was officially announced that Logan died, and that's not good optics, um, would be considered, I guess, insider trading, possibly. So he tells Kendall this, and Kendall uses it as leverage at the end to get him yeah. sort of to freelance this this. Um, under the radar PR move, slamming his father, and it's just like, weird choice of person to tell. Like, tell 
Jerry? Why would you tell Kendall? There was a there was an insinuation that Kendall mm. had some kind of relationship with Hugo's daughter. Uh, really? really? When they were having that conversation. <laughs> or that they really? knew each other I, I didn't pick up on that at all. Hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. Why tell Kendall and not Jerry? Or Carolina, your boss. So, okay, Michael, this is where we need to bring this in. (laughs) No, I'm not walking into this trap. I don't know what the relationship in the org chart is clearly between Carolina and Hugo. Um, Do you understand the difference between them, though? It's it's like the kind of people they are, the kind of jobs they have. One appears to be a sort of, like, she's more of a communications strategist in a way and a little bit more on the inside like she sort of will set the strategy. Then Hugo, I think, is the one that actually kind of says, "Okay, this is what we're going to say using this kind of language." I think, which is which has like a slightly different, sometimes has a slightly different title. I'm not sure that one is the other's boss, but they seem to kind of like be doing two, like a little bit inside outside ends of things. Which I think I heard you kind of saying last week i think she's more public facing he's more like behind the scenes oh really i sort of was interpreting the other way around really? maybe that's just yeah i, I don't just know. based on like how they present he seems yeah. more like you know lurking behind the scenes oh i think my like my um my read of it is that carolina is more of a sort of waystar royco executive and hugo is more of he works more for the family he was like logan's guy yeah he would be the one who could go get you know go get some advil or something in in, insofar as insofar as there's like a distinction between logan's interests and waystar's interests you know i would say that carolina would come down on the side of waystar while hugo would come down on the side of logan hugo would come down on the side of hugo yeah (laughs) But, but Felix, I think you're right, and I think it's easy to sort of forget because most people don't – very few people live like this, and, and and most other people don't come into contact with these sort of scenarios. But for these really wealthy people, it's really common for there to be, you know, at least two structures, kind of a corporate public-facing structure and then, quote, unquote, the family office. And if you have that kind of wealth, you know, the things that are sort of – the tasks that are undertaken and the staff you require to run the family office can be just as, you know, can be the size of a medium, you know, a medium large enterprise for anyone else with, you know, multiple staff and all these people scurrying around doing things. And um, it's, yeah, what's weird is that it's completely, you know, all those people have one client basically, which is the family. They have one job, which is to keep the family happy. And uh, yet they sort of, They'll have desks and business cards and like that the family office will have an official name uh, that kind of functions as the the financial entity that's kind of commissioning the plane rides and kind of taking out the mortgage on the um, on the office and paying for the hotel for the family retreat and all this other stuff. And it's but yet it sort of is it's sort of just like a shadow company that requires, you know, that has no real public audience at all. Also, a listener um, emailed us, I should say, a few days ago and reminded me, reminded all of us, that in the previous in a previous season, Hugo tried to get Carolina fired. He was talking to Logan and just suggested it. And he said something like, you nasty move, or I don't remember the exact language, but there was a, a mutual recognition of their slipperiness and willingness to backstab in that moment. Emily, it's real connoisseurship, by the way, to be 
you know, to really be kind of doing this sort of analysis of sort of the second and third string. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, like, like the hoi polloi out there is just kind of like, uh, um, you know, following the lead actors, but to really go down to that level. I think, I mean, to me, I find that whole structure of, uh, of Carl, Frank, Jerry, Hugo, Carolina, all really, really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I mean, that kitchen scene, I just. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. It's so what does good. he say? Does anyone want to have a look at the china? <laughs> yeah. I highlighted it. So good. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Would anyone care for a look at the china? <laughs> <laughs> they all kind of sidle into the kitchen. And, and, and the way that it's constantly signaled, you know, who's going to be in the room, who's going to be out of the room. And it's, it's, you know, so, and just so, so it strikes me as so funny and weird and clear that even at this moment, when it comes time to talk about the business and it's the four kids, um, Connor's told, you know, uh, thanks, we're going to have to handle this. And he says, uh, Mikasa es su casa. <laughs> pride of his new home, you know, you know, by all means, right? <laughs> so, yeah, as as Matt Levine says on Bloomberg all the time, seating plans for everything. Like everything yeah. is about who is in which room at at which time. There's this fascinating and absolutely real distinction between upstairs and downstairs. That you know, downstairs is a quasi public area where almost anyone can turn up. You know, whether you're a presidential candidate or you know the Secret Service's dog or Kerry or anyone. Upstairs is the much more of the sanctum sanctorum where you need to be very, you know, important and or family. But even Connor doesn't make it upstairs. Yeah. Um, Greg, like, because just by sheer obliviousness does actually go upstairs and and, <laughs> and gets told that he is an addendum of miscellaneous matters in pencil with a question mark. Which <laughs> And Greg's immediate reaction is that uh, Logan wanted him to be number two in the company. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone literally bursts out laughing. But yeah, but then Stewie does this incredible power play where he's like, I know I don't belong upstairs. You know, he had no real relationship with Logan. They were were adversaries. Um, But he just like barges in to the room and... The execs are like, wait, no, you're not meant to be here. And the kids are like, no, he can be here. And then that that is the power play right there, right? The actual yeah. real decision as to who gets to take over the company is all played out in this conversation of is Stewie even allowed upstairs? And 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 when he and when he's allowed in, it's sort of game over, at least uh this round, right? Yeah. Meanwhile, can- you know, there's there's like you know, everyone else becomes completely irrelevant, whether it's Caroline or Ewan or <laughs> or Peter Munyon, who's sending texts to Connor saying, it's a rum situation and one in the eye for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> that's British talk, I believe, right? I, I don't understand yeah. it, but it's... That's, I mean, I, I say such things to Emily all the time. <laughs> and I don't understand what he's saying, but I smile. <laughs> Can I ask a question that you may all know this already, but um, who's the dad of um, Shiv's? Oh, yeah. Let's get into it. Michael. Yes. Who is the dad? Like, I don't want to get all kind of gothic and gossipy, (laughs) but like, you know, to me. The Shiv pregnancy thing is like, we should definitely talk about that a bit more because number one, Uh, you know, it helps to answer the question of the elasticated pants in episode one. And her general dishevelment. And her in dev- yeah. general dish- dishevelment. 
Number two, <laughs> I think it helps to explain the speed with which she rolled over to her two brothers taking over the company because she was like doing the mental math and they were saying like we're going to be in charge for six to eight months and she's like yeah on the six to eight month time horizon i'm going to be like having a baby i don't want to be trying to be co-ceo and having a baby at the same time this is just going to be a shit show and i felt i feel i feel like she was like realistically speaking this the timing of this baby has really kind of put a put the kibosh on me being the CEO. She she makes a half-hearted play, but she knows it's not going to work. Yeah, she's so angry, though, that she's being blocked out. You know, the scene where she stumbles toward the end and uh, gets very angry when people are trying to help her. She is a mess. When they did the, um, you know, what I thought was a fairly kind of like gutsy jaw-dropping, you know, we're one minute in and just when you thought there's no more surprises to be had, they sort of let us let us off easy on this episode. They spring another one on you right before the title song starts up. The the conversation she has with her OBGYN makes it sound like this is this isn't it's it could have been it could have been scripted a completely different way, which is we got the results and you definitely are pregnant. Oh no! Or she could be in the bathroom and discover it, you know. But instead, this is obviously something that she's really been monitoring really closely. There's been multiple consultations with the doctor, and you know everything has come back okay. Everything looks good, and like you know, and and uh, and and her, you can't tell from her face whether she's happy or sad or you know, what it's all about. But to me, it's, you know, this isn't an accident. It's something that she's very, in, you know. Yeah, no, I think, I, I do think, I do think it's not an accident. And to answer your question, Michael, I this is why I'm 90% sure that Tom is the father. And quite possibly, Tom is the father through a whole bunch of, like, very medical procedures that they spent a lot of time working on. And, you know, we just haven't seen the you know the the conversations definitely kind of align with the whole sort of like you know geriatric mother thing of you know make how it's difficult to get pregnant at her age and there are lots of complications and you need to be on top of it and you have lots of you know high highly expensive medical advice and all of this kind of stuff um tom obviously doesn't suspect but there is in that conversation between shiv and tom that one line where she talks about logan how he might have been around for 20 more years to rock his grandkids to sleep and logan and tom mm. does not pick up on the subtext there but that's clearly what she's thinking yeah and just to go back to what michael was saying so the doctor on the phone says your amnio results and that's the tip off like oh she's really far along because you don't get you don't necessarily always get amnio synthesis. That's like um, a test. Yeah, they're, they're scheduling a twenty-week scan. Yeah, like, that's and they're really in a twenty-week scan. Yeah. So amnio means there's already probably been some kind of like genetic test that looked weird or prenatal test that looked weird. So they went ahead and did the amnio because it's like a little of a riskier test. Or it means she's over thirty-five, which I'm not clear that she her character is over thirty-five in this. I think she is. Yeah. Yeah, I assumed it was an age thing rather than a, a, a specific worry thing. But I think, oh, I think also if you're if if you're that age, probably yeah. you know, if you if, if you're that status, you just kind of use every procedure they've got available. For yeah, you that makes sense only too. The best for the Roy's, you know. But I don't know. I, there was the um, the episode where she suggests freezing her eggs when Tom says he wants to have babies. So oh, that's right. Like, they did have that whole conversation, didn't they? Yeah, and he was like devastated by that. 
But this could just be a regular, like, she got pregnant kind of a thing, right? Because he obviously doesn't know about it. And it would have been 16 weeks ago. That could have... that. Would have been before maybe his betrayal, you know, and they stopped right. speaking. Right, right. I and think, are, I, yeah. <clears throat> and are we meant to think at the end when she trips that that might jeopardize the pregnancy in some way? Because I sort of started thinking that all those, that that was like Chekhov's marble staircase or Chekhov's <laughs> high heels or something. Because yeah. I all of a sudden, you know, that house, when she, whenever she was moving around, it seemed much more precarious to me that, you know. And um, then she finally takes that spill, and I thought, oh, this could be, you know, the denouement of the, you know. Of the- I, I think, I think if you wanted more to, to dislodge a baby, I think. Yeah, if you, know, if you wanted so. a baby dislodging <laughs> spill, then that would have happened, had to have happened on the big staircase. Yeah, the- I think so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 That's like yeah. something yeah. in a movie from, like, the 1930s or something. Yeah, a baby you know. dislodging spill. <laughs> <laughs> or, or like, you know, Princess Diana throwing herself down the staircase in an attempt to, like, you know, I don't know what the hell she was trying to do. But, yeah, Shiv is clearly, you know, again, like, amazing acting in that yeah. scene in the bed. Um, and um, can we talk about the letter? There's a piece of paper. Oh, the piece of paper. <laughs> it's, it, which, which, like, just gets read by, like, it takes about five seconds for that piece of paper to get its way to, like, even Tom. Like, everyone <laughs> knows about this, the piece of paper. Yeah, no, I, first. I have to admit, I, um, when it was being discussed and uh, there's a moment where there's a, a medium shot and the piece of paper is visible and you can sort of make out that there's some little list in the right-hand corner. And uh, I remember thinking at that moment, you know, this is our only chance to really know what's on the piece of paper. But then a few minutes <laughs> later, they're basically telling you everything that's on the piece of paper. And I, I, I thought that uh, um, that whole underline versus crossing out thing was just I mean maybe some of my thing was too on the nose but boy oh boy you know I mean it's sort of the last thing he looks at before he goes to Hugo to kind of like make his thing and you can Mm -hmm. tell that he sort of is you know um, that that sort of is the affirmation he's been willing into existence his whole life Mm -hmm. and, and there it is probably Assuming that it's, it, it does look like it's underlined rather than crossed out. Uh, I thought it looked like it was crossed out. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> this is like the dress on BuzzFeed. Uh-huh. So is the dress white or is it blue? Okay. Right. So it'll just depend on your own relationship with your own father, I suppose. <laughs> oh, my God. Incredible. Wow. Incredible. Wait, but why didn't... So Carl and Frank, they joke about, you know, maybe it could be lost, you know, just comically musing about it. And Carl goes, I'm kidding, of course. And Frank goes, you're speculating in a humorous vein. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But why didn't they just do that? I don't understand. Are they just that inept? They're not ethical, are they? If I was, if I were them, I would have been like, we'll just put that down for now. You know what I mean? Like, no one else is going to see it. I think, yeah, it... It, they probably things were moving too fast. I feel like they're just a bunch of clowns. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's this it big secret that, like you said, Felix, yeah. everyone knows in a minute. And then also, I think it's sort of maybe as a as a bit of plotting, it's necessary just to t- tip it one more, you know, inch towards um, affirming that Kendall is the legitimate heir to the uh, to the throne in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because absent that, it's just sort of, you know, the, the status quo of everyone kind of a war of all against all would just kind of continue, I suppose. And suddenly this uh, quasi 
document, which also has what I think like music and things on it, songs he wants to play. That seems very sentimental for not, not to mention the the investment grade impressionists, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the three Gogans no one's ever seen for tax reasons. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is which is so, you know, is so on the nose because this is the thing, right? Like there's the famous art collectors um, who are well-known and sit on museum boards and that kind of thing. There is also famously trillions of dollars worth of art sitting in the Geneva Freeport owned by, you know, big question mark. And I love the idea that Logan Roy is the kind of person who will own, you know, maybe a couple hundred million dollars worth of impressionists just sitting in the Geneva Freeport it's kind of a little baby hedge, you know, just in case everything goes to shit. He can always go to Geneva and, you know, sell off a Gauguin. Um, <laughs> it's, it, you know, he, he, the, he's the kind of person. Like, the question is always, like, what kind of person buys masterpieces and locks them up in a Freeport in Geneva? And then the answer is someone who doesn't actually care about art. Like yeah, Logan. yeah. I mean, I don't remember... Over the whole course of this series, I don't remember Logan ever, ever sort of expressing pleasure or satisfaction in maybe anything. But I mean, I can't imagine him like looking at a painting and saying, oh, isn't that beautiful? Or drinking a glass of wine and saying, this is worth every penny. Or sinking into a really beautiful upholstered seat and saying, ah, you know, such comfort, you know, thank God I can afford it. He just sort of seems to be... Yeah, I mean, I just so shark-like and just constantly moving forward. I can, and I speak of the man in the present tense, uh, but uh, um, such is his hole in everyone's imagination, I suppose. He's long gone yeah, now. They were looking at that picture of him on the cover of the newspaper, smiling and laughing, and they were like, who's that guy? Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and, I, and I do think um, um, it's sort of like the last episode, too, is the, you know, the repartee that we've all come to savor is – you know, it's actually, there was like one kind of explicit moment where uh, um, they're talking about uh, Logan's, Logan's newly revealed habit of calling Marsha once or twice a day. And then, <laughs> Which uh, totally happened, 100%. Yeah. And, and, I'm, I'm, and sure, someone, and, I'm sure Kerry was just sitting there like listening to those conversations yeah. going, you, yeah, you go give her another hand. Yeah. And, then, um, and then someone, I forget who, uh, 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 Shiv or... or uh, Kendall says, um, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to think about what that kind of phone sex was like. And then everyone kind of looks expectantly at, uh, at, uh, at Roman, like, like, like Q, you know, and, uh, and he says, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not doing a sex, you know, a sex joke about dad. Sorry. And he just sort of shrugs and declines to take the bait, which I thought was actually a kind of bit of transparent, uh, wink uh, a sort of transparent wink from this from the script from the from the writers you know kind yeah. of like but you know. um but yeah if we're if, if we're talking about line we should probably do like the favorite lines thing i think no one suggested that he would fuck a child he wouldn't even hug his grandkids is a great line <laughs> yeah another grandkids line yeah slaying the foundation um elizabeth do you have a favorite line from this episode I thought Jerry had a lot of good lines in this episode, but I, my favorite part was where Carl was lobbying for himself to be CEO. And she looks at him and just very devastatingly says, 
Carl, I think you're a corporate legend. What you did in the 90s with cable, <laughs> huge. <laughs> that was such a good line. That, that, that was the most savage put down. Uh, you know, much more than calling someone a dipshit, sort of praising their yeah, success with cable call, in the calling, 90s. Yeah, calling them a corporate legend. That <laughs> yeah. was, No one can survive that. Yeah. Devastating. Um, there were so many good ones. Um, but I think I enjoyed... You know, when Kendall's walking the townhouse and everyone's like, I'm so sorry for your loss. I'm so sorry for your loss. I'm oh, so sorry for your loss. And then Sid says to Kendall, sorry, babe. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> yeah, like the only people who are close enough to Kendall to be able to, you know, not recite the rote is his siblings, I guess, and Sid and Stewie. Yeah. And that and that does show you like how Stewie has that how that Kendall Stewie relationship really does like drive the episode. He made him laugh because he said something like, "I heard I heard he died after he read your business plan yeah. for Pierce." Yeah, <laughs> he choked laughing. Laugh. Yeah, no, I I thought that um, um or, or this, died fishing his iPhone from a clogged toilet. Yeah, that that may have been true actually. Oh I wouldn't God. be yeah. I could that I could see that happening. I thought that was true. Um, uh, I, I, at the, towards the beginning, I thought that um, uh, Roman had a classic and delivered it beautifully too. Uh, whereas, uh, where's Carrie? And it's like he's in Mars's trunk, in an anaconda, in a sarcophagus. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was good, and, and, and and so even though he was declining to participate later on, he sort of got some good ones in anyway. Did we, so, okay, so in terms of predictions of where we're going next, uh, Michael, you're pretty convinced that was the last we've seen of Kerry. She's not going to come back with some, you know, rattling some skeletons from Logan's closet. No, I don't, I don't think so. I think she's meant to be us. You know, she's meant to be poor people who have no power in this world, who just has been dispatched to oblivion, basically. Turned I'd be really surprised apartment. if she came back. Um, there was that amazing exchange between Marsha and Willa. Um, <gasps> yes. How far yes. you've come. Look how far, well, Marcia, look how far you've come. And Willa's like, yes, look at us both. <laughs> <laughs> which is Which was so absolutely pitch perfect. But yeah, I mean, like, it was definitely conceivable that Carrie might have entered that stratospheric realm and she just got there too late. Emily, do you have any, any other prognostications for the rest of the, what happens next? I I keep waiting for the siblings to kind of like have a bust up and I possibly were headed in that direction in the next episode, which will likely be the following day after this day. Um, I'm obsessed with how each episode. So Emily day. has this whole theory that every it's day not a is. <laughs> it is a theory which I I am going to push back on. You have this theory, so we know for a fact that every episode is confined to one day. There's Correct. no like multiple day episodes. But Correct. you also have a separate theory, and yes. I, I'm I'm 100 with you on theory number one. You also have theory number two that the entire season is basically taking pl- place over the course of ten days, and that. Each episode happens the day after the previous episode. Yes. And yes. I just don't, I can't make that work with the way that the kids are all up in Albany at the beginning of episode two after hanging out in like Los Angeles on episode one and going back to New York. And like, I just, I feel like it, they, they don't 
there's they've been hanging out in Albany for a little while. It took them a few days to get there. They would have been there for a couple of days. I don't think they hop up there just for the evening. There is sort of a, you know, that the weirdness about what day of the week it is and are the markets open or aren't the markets open? They mentioned that right. again. The markets so I, I do think I do think it's becoming clearer that the wedding was on a Friday and today is Saturday. Yes, absolutely. That's yeah. absolutely correct. And again, makes no sense with the stock thing. Or maybe it does. No, maybe it does. Because, the death because before the stock market closed. Exactly. Because the, if the wedding was on a Friday, then the yeah. stock market would have been open. And that would explain why the stock market falls when everyone finds out that um, Logan has died. So, and your so issue, that bit makes sense. So your issue is it opens with them in California. And then the second episode, they're in New York. And you think they would have been in that New York upstate spot for longer than a day. I, I don't think so. They, by the end of the second episode, they're already headed to New York for Connor's, you know, um, rehearsal dinner. Right, exactly. So that's the point, right? So if if the rehearsal dinner... <laughs> this is really... Like so next it's, if the rehearsal dinner is on Thursday, <laughs> right? Yeah. They fly out from L.A. to New York on Wednesday night. Shiv mm-hmm. gets in very late on mm-hmm. Wednesday night. She wakes mm-hmm. up Tom in in their apartment on Wednesday night. And then... The rehearsal dinner is Thursday night at the Four Seasons. She's not going to pop up to Albany for, like, the morning with her two brothers and then go back down again as, like, a, you know, when's she going to wake up? How's she going to, like, no, that just doesn't make any sense. Albany they, is they, not far from they New don't York City. Even spend, they don't even spend one day there. They, but it's only, it's two hours away. I went to college there, so I'm very familiar with the, the trip. What would, be, what would be the purpose of, like, getting both of your siblings, and flying <laughs> them off to a farm in Albany on the day of your brother's rehearsal dinner. It doesn't make any sense. I don't buy it. I'm just musing in a comic mode. But <laughs> <laughs> but I guess we should talk about bigger picture predictions. And I'll come back to you to debate further this consecutive days thing, I guess. Um, I, I just want um, the 100 to come back because I thought that idea had... So what so did you original. think about the logos, Michael? As a professional. Um, yeah, I, I, I really did. Believe me, in my circles, there were a lot of freeze-framing and debating about the logos. <laughs> the logos were not great, um, but um, but sort of like the hapless, um, uh, um, you know, mode of presentation via Zoom where I'm going to share my screen and walk you through a deck and I've got seven options for your logo – um, you know, th- th- all of us got very used to that in, you know, the pandemic for sure. And also, you never really, you almost willed yourself to not imagine too clearly what was happening on the other end of the, uh, of the, you know, what, what was happening on the audience side of the thing. You just wanted, you had to keep thinking everyone is wrapped. They're all paying attention. They're all tracking everything I'm saying. And meanwhile, you just have some like Roman just like, sprawling around saying that's shit i hate that that's stupid what are you even thinking <laughs> and then and then as they were being you know the thing that was most poignant to me during that presentation by the design firm quote unquote was um they were just in the midst of saying okay then we've got your input we're going to circle back and click and that was sort of like you know <laughs> sort of like you know and sort of like that cheerful sort of oh we made a lot of progress with this review and of course you know they'll never hear from the Roy's again, and they'll follow up, and they'll be ghosted, and probably not even paid because <gasps> that wasn't, you know, whatever happened to that thing, and that's dead, and we don't care. So, masterclass will never meet the economist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and, and by the way, that idea, that, that, that's like the idea that people always have when they're regrouping, right? We're all smart. What if we pull together just nothing but smart people and offer that as an exclusive, only smart people here sort of thing, you know? <laughs> and and I sort of like as a business model, it's just, it's, it seems to be just evergreen and ever, yeah. you know. It worked for Axios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True. <laughs> True. Elizabeth, do you have any predictions? Well, I, I think last week I predicted that Kendall would be the last person standing, but there's so much misdirection in succession that, you know, yeah, the if, end of if this he, episode. If he's standing in episode four, there's no way he's going to be standing in episode 10. Yeah, yeah. So now I, I just have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the safest, smartest way to go. Just who knows? No, uh, Felix, I'm, I'm actually very um, haunted a little bit by your question about Carrie, you know, sort of that's the ultimate misdirection, right? If she somehow, you know, maybe she comes back and runs everything. At Somebody the end, on Twitter believe. suggested she might be pregnant. Like whenever she looked really unhinged after a uh, little yeah, good night. Yeah. yeah. I don't think, I think by the laws of drama, multiple people can't be pregnant. Only one person. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we've, we've now officially achieved our quota of pregnancies. Yeah. <laughs> We will be back on Saturday with a regular Slate Money. And then, just two days later, next Monday, we'll be back for episode five of Slate Money Succession. Many thanks to Patrick Fort for producing. And very many thanks to Michael Beirut. You are a superstar. We love having you on the show. Come back anytime you want. Um, Yeah, thank you. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.